I think one of it was complacency. So basically the industry was so wildly successful it, it, and it was producing so much money that it was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if you think about Fonterra, it's a super corporatized, multi-layered multinational now. It's very hard for them to spin on a dime on anything. That's Darren Keeler, CEO and founder of ag tech startup Way Beyond. They're a New Zealand company whose mission it is to improve the way we cultivate food. As we know, access to quality nutrition, fruit and vegetables is critical for the health and well-being of our future generations. But our food systems face uncertainty in the wake of climate change. Cyclone Gabrielle highlighted the power of extreme weather to disrupt our food growers. So what does a more resilient food system look like? Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland, and sponsored by MedWorld. For a long time, New Zealand has traded off the back of its agricultural and farming expertise. Producing enough food to feed 40 million, we export most of that overseas. It's made us a pretty wealthy country and afforded us access to new medicines, precision scientific instruments, animal feed and fuel. However, our heavy reliance on agriculture has come at the cost of our environment, leading to soil degradation, water pollution and excessive carbon emissions. On today's episode, I speak with Darren Keeler about how we can reduce our impact on the land while building more sustainable food systems that feed families. We have all of these really complex topics and I feel like in this uh, modern day age of 24-hour news cycles and mm. TikTok, everything's been reduced to little hot takes and little 10-second pieces yeah. when actually we've got some really complex yeah. issues. But I mean, this is the thing that I agree 100%. I mean, I think uh, that's one of the things I found really refreshing about like the way you were communicating while you were campaigning that really grabbed my attention because you literally said on one of your posts, I'm fed up with everything being a soundbite and we've got these really complex challenges and the only way we can really navigate through them in a meaningful way is if people have real conversations, deep conversations about those issues. And it just doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't. And I feel like people are going further and further in different directions in whatever direction they're going, but Mm. because they're doing that and not communicating with each other, we're not getting that, like I say, meaningful collaboration Mm. because these big problems that we talk about sustainability and the environment, these are all problems that are going to affect all of us and we have to come together for a solution that's going to work for all of us. 100%. I mean, Mm. just before we get into that, so, I mean, it was, so I had a, was speaking to a 15-year-old girl and a 13-year-old boy yesterday who are children of a friend of mine and and the subject around Palestine and Gaza came up and it was really interesting because what's very apparent to me, I'm like a hobby historian, right, so I understand a lot about the history of things and this young generation don't, they don't know anything about what happened before five minutes ago and so 
and 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 their takeaway was, oh, but you know, basically Palestine is good, Israel is bad. That was literally their summary. And I said, well, why do you think that? And they said, well, because that's all we hear on social media, right? Because they're consuming TikTok, they're consuming Instagram. It's incredibly it complex. Yeah, it is. And I feel with this movement on social media, it's that. Everyone, whether you've got knowledge or experience on this really complex topic of the you know Middle East and the mm. geopolitical history that's happened there over decades, is that everyone has to have an opinion on this topic, whether or not you actually know what you're talking about. Right. And I think a lot of influencers and celebrities and whatever, they have to have, they have to take a side. And if you don't take a side, then you're just one of the bad ones. And I'm like, well, you can't force someone to have an opinion on something they don't know anything about because it's dangerous. But again, I mean, exactly. And so what's happening is it's that is the basis for all the polarisation that we're seeing in Western society, right, is this idea that you must take a side. And there's either and there's right and there's wrong and it's black or it's white and there's no nuance. Exactly. But that's not how real life is. And, and I think works. that's one of the problems that I was having with how New Zealand politics was going is that one side was the morally right side and one side was the morally wrong side. Right. And therefore, if you're not one of us, then you're not part of us and you're not on the good side. <laughs> yeah. The nuance of any subjects is so important to delve into. And I think that the way that the US, for example, has always navigated life it was the fact they had a strong partisanship, regardless of whether you were Democrat or Republican. Now all of that's gone out the window. But I think rather than us looking at compromise, what we should actually be doing is what you're suggesting, which is, well, we need to actually have the conversation all over again and actually come up with a new answer. Because unfortunately, what happens with the traditional mindset is that they just go back to the answers or the approaches that they've always done before. And you're seeing that with the new government, right? So with the new government, you've now got them doing behaviours like literally out of the gate. And you're like, what are you guys doing? You've got this opportunity to do something new. You talked about doing new things. And it's almost like you're just returning to type again. <laughs> and I can just know? see like people pulling their hair out, being like, what is going on? <laughs> I know, right? So it's disappointing to say the least especially for someone who actually voted on that side of the ledger for the most part, apart from voting for top for the party vote. But it was like, it was, it, it just shocked me really that they've come out like the anti rolling back the, the smoking legislation, which makes no sense to me at all. Even if you're is, sitting on the center right, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That's what we, we what, what, what we've been talking about as well at home is that they didn't campaign on this. And I'm sure I'm almost certain as that most people who are center right or right wing, like, would be shocked by that move as well. Oh, I, I totally are because <laughs> I talk to them, you yeah. know. So that that just really surprised me. Anyway, let's get back onto the yes. other topic. So, yeah, thank um, you so much for coming on this podcast, Darren. Mm. I think we're at a very interesting stage in New Zealand history and in global history. I feel like we're at this crossroads when it comes to environmental sustainability and climate change. A lot of this conversation, I think, is about carbon emissions and getting to net carbon zero. But mm. I think when it comes to an environment, there are so many more different things than just carbon, right? We talk sure. about sustainability in terms of land use, 
water use, food security, and what's there's part environmental sustainability. But we also have to think about economic sustainability as well, right? right? How do we make sure that we still have enough money and tax revenue to fund our basic public services and make sure that everyone has jobs, right? So there's all these other things we have to think about as well. So I'm really glad to get you on this podcast to talk a little bit about sustainability, but also like I guess in the startup world of sustainability. Sure. I mean, thanks. And thanks for the <laughs> opportunity to talk about it. I mean, the it's very hard to talk about for us. I mean, we're both in food production as well as trying to address sustainable production. So those two themes or subject areas overlap a lot, like intrinsically overlap. So I'll, I'll probably dance between them. Yeah, sure. I think that the reason why I got into this in the first place was around the disconnect that's happened between us as consumers and farming, right? And you touched on this in, a, in another post you did as well, which really resonated strongly with me. So it is, you know, when, when we grew up in New Zealand, it was a very, almost everybody knew someone who was a farmer, like you were re related to someone who was on a dairy farm or producing something. And that has all got disconnected because a lot of people have left farming. Farming's become much more corporatized, commercialized, automated. And so people have lost touch with it. And, and they also don't understand how hard producing anything actually is. Yeah. I mean, so right now I am trying to grow chilies and cherry tomatoes. And then we had some garlic bulbs at home in the cupboard that just kept sprouting. I thought, okay, you know what? If they're going to sprout, I may as well just try and grow them. And mm. I chucked them in, into the soil and <laughs> realized it takes like months and months to grow a new garlic garlic bulb from a piece of garlic and you just realize oh wow we've really we've outsourced these really key services that people used to do like for themselves like you, you used to have more subsistence farming I guess or at least people spent a lot more time and efforts to grow their own food but you know we've really forgotten how much effort it requires and yeah, look, time. I think, I mean, certainly I'm a generation up from you, <laughs> at least. But I mean, my grandparents, they grew up in a world where you still had a your backyard garden. They were still producing their fruit and veg themselves to support their own family. And it was still quite common for people to trade eggs for fruit or butter for something else for meat. I mean, there was still that happening between neighbours and family members. And that was quite a common thing. And of course, all of that has evolved away as the supply chain got more and more advanced and now everything's like factory production of everything. And if you go and talk to the producers, they themselves draw the analogy that their farming systems are basically food factories, whether they're producing cows, milk, avocados or kiwi fruit. That's the way they look at it. And, and part of that is because they're having to, they're being driven to have to produce more for an ever-increasing population. So the thing you can't get away from where you need to start the dialogue is the fact that our population, our global population is just growing and growing, right? And so just the sheer mass of humanity is having a massive impact on our planet. And that's a big problem, right? And it's not just manifesting in carbon output, it's manifesting in deforestation, damage to soil, damage to water supply. There's dead zones in the oceans that no fish or organism can exist in anymore. That's all pretty frightening stuff, right? And so for me, the opportunity is how do we move back towards a, a broader sense of planetary care and produce what a growing population needs, but do it in a way that's more mindful of the planet 
and how we use utilize the resources of the planet. Mm. So that's where I started this whole thing. And what do you think that Way Beyond contributes to this? So what we're focusing on is like ag is such a massive industry, like it's mm-hmm. a seven trillion dollar industry like a in year. the world or just yeah, in New in Zealand? The world. In the world. No, right? in the world. Well, well that would be. Like if trillion, it was New Zealand, like a, I was like, yeah, that's a pretty big number. No Trillion's a big number. It wouldn't matter who the government was, we'd have no problem with money. Um, well, how big is the ag tech sector in New Zealand? So ag tech in New Zealand is not super big. There's maybe oh, 50, 60 companies in incubation. There's probably a dozen to 20 that are working on farms, depending on how you define ag tech, because there's also biotech, food tech. So sometimes those things bleed over. If you included all of that, there's hundreds. So it's a relatively buoyant um, incubation sector in New Zealand, but it's been very hard for companies in, in those three disciplines to scale because there's a lack of strategic support from investors and from government which is a constant thing I talk about when I'm talking to the government and I'm talking to investors. So, and, and it's ridiculous because ag is our number one GDP. Because what do you mean creator. by this lack of strategic development? What does that mean? So basically there's no plan. So if you go back 50 years ago, the government initiated, the government of the day initiated a strategy and, and they underpin that strategy through creating the Crown Research Institutes, the CRIs. And each CRI was focused on a different industry type. Um, So plant and food research would be a good example, right? So PFR is now around about seven or 800 scientists and they spend most of the time researching new genetics. And they've been really formative in aiding the horticultural sector to develop new world-class varieties of kiwi fruit, of berries, of apples. So a lot of that IP creation has actually come out of PFR in partnership with private industry. So that and that was a powerful strategy and that was something that we did as a country and it was super smart and a bull semen, you know what I mean? So that was another thing we did. So we basically looked at genetics and we were like, well, how do we produce cows that produce more milk mm. or produce more meat? Or So we were doing this really smart stuff with leveraging science, innovating on science, innovating on production methods. And this really accelerated New Zealand's success as an agricultural food and fibre producer. And And that's the legacy we're still living on today. And how did it fall away? How come there is no strategy? I think a few things. I think one of it was complacency. So basically the industry was so wildly successful and it was producing so much money that it was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I mean? So the whole idea of innovation and continuing to push the boundary, that all fell away. And and partly that was aided by these organisations getting super big, super complex, really corporatized, right? So if you think about Fonterra, I mean, it's a super corporatized, multi-layered, multinational now. It's very hard for them to spin on a dime on anything. Right, because when um, you get that big corporate structure, then you sort of get a bit of an inertia in terms of decision-making. Is that what you're trying to say? Decision-making, strategy. Innovation. Innovation. And they'll still talk about those things. And I think they do try. So I'm not suggesting that they don't, that they're not conscious of it. But it's done at a much slower pace. They're not as open-minded. They're more risk-averse because they're also conscious of their shareholders who are also farmers. The last round of innovation they did was, what, probably 20 years ago when they did things around yogurt value-added food products. So when they started getting into yogurts and all that stuff, they evolved into 
the idea of value added. So let's create food products from those raw ingredients that we've got access to. And that was like another burst of growth and activity. And that was cool. But right now, nothing. And they have a lot of influence as lobbyists with the government. So this becomes the thing. So there's a thing called the ITP, the Industry Transformation Plan for Ag, right, which I've been asked to contribute to and have. But it's got no real traction with the government. They get a minuscule amount of funding out of the budget, and yet it's our largest sector, right? And typically when you go along and you hear the government announce the latest ag food strategy, it's still around dairy and meat production. And do you know what I mean? It's like, well, nothing has changed. And then you've got as all in this- we've got all this other stuff as well, the fruit and veg that we need to be thinking about as well, right, do you mean? Right. Or, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, horticulture in terms of kiwi fruit apples gets a lot of road miles, but- you know, in terms of like innovation, I mean, the last big innovation company was Gallagher's. I mean, the guys who created the electric fence. Oh, that was a while but again, ago. that was 50. I know, but that's what I'm saying. That was 50, 60 years ago, right? And it's okay. made. Well, what kind of innovation does Way Beyond bring to the it's scene? Made that, it's made that family very wealthy. Um, well, so Way Beyond is, is sort of in the new era, right? It's IoT, cloud, data, artificial intelligence, right? So that's what we're doing. The new wave, okay. Yeah, we're doing the new wave. So we're, when, I, when I got into this in 2015 and I had a look around the world, I was really shocked because there was nothing new in, in horticulture or protective systems or even ag in general. And often what I talk about is the fact that the last formative technology of any industry was the tractor. So when the kerosene power tractor got invented in 1903, if you think about it, everything since then, whether you're in orchard cropping or dairy or whatever you're in, is always something that you attach to the back of the tractor. Oh, we've got a new cutter, we've got a new planter, we've got a new this, we've got a new this, but it's all built That's around right. I this. Did, I really enjoyed watching Clarkson's Farm. You've seen oh, that? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I love it. Because I grew up in Walkworth, which mm. is a relatively rural-ish kind of town. And a lot of, you leave Walkworth like in two minutes and it's just all farmland, right? Yeah, yeah. But I was a townie. I, I wasn't a farm girl. So I, you know, I had classmates who grew up on farms and things. And but I really enjoyed watching that show, Clarkson's Farm, because I just thought, holy moly, it is really expensive and it is really difficult yeah. to be a farmer. I think that was probably the biggest success of that show is showing townies what it's that, like. But exactly what Jeremy was doing was exactly addressing what I was talking about at the start, which is why I watched the show, because it was so engaging, because it was that bridge of the public back to how hard farming is. how, Like you said, how expensive it is, how difficult it is. Jeremy was completely clueless, openly clueless, which obviously was a great proposition for doing the show <laughs> at all, right? But, you know, he engaged local farming talent and he tried to learn and learn and he did learn over time. Probably helps that he's pretty wealthy. But, you know, it really, I think it was the fact that it just illustrated to all of us the challenges of farm production. And he was also trying to make the farm modern and the way that the practices and sustainable he was looking at that wasn't he he was trying to tackle those things which again illustrate how hard that is to actually do in practice so it's a great show both seasons of the show have been were, were awesome so yeah so i mean that's it's great that there are media stars who actually take a constructive approach to telling that story and make it entertaining as well which helps So anyway, yeah. back to way beyond. What do you? How do you guys use so, AI? To so basically, innovate? yeah. So what we're doing is digital agronomy. So it's really about how do we help produce the crops better. So everything we do is based on protected cropping systems. So, so berries. What's protected cropping. So protected cropping is basically any form of 
canopy or tunnel or netting or anything that puts the crop in a more protected system. So that could be protecting from too much sunlight, too much heat, too much wind, frost, hail, like there's heaps of things. And really what it does is it eliminates a lot of the risks from open field soil-based production. So, Because really open field farmers are just at the mercy of the weather and the climate. Constantly. And how much of New Zealand farming at the moment is protected farming? Oh, or not, protected much, agriculture? Not, not much. Not much. So to give you some sense of scale, about 95% of the tomatoes, the capsicums, the cucumbers that we eat, they come from high-tech glasshouses or hothouses. So if you go into any mainstream supermarket in New Zealand, 95% of what's on the shelf is coming from those systems. Collectively, there are about 180 hectares of glasshouse or greenhouse-based production. Our smallest grower in Mexico using net housing is around about 150 hectares. So we've got one farm, one farm in Mexico is almost all of New Zealand's production for just for that. Our largest producer, which is a French Moroccan company called Azura in Morocco, has a thousand hectares of tomato production. They just produce tomatoes. So you're um, saying all almost all of the tomatoes produced in New Zealand are produced in glasshouse greenhouses? Yes. And so you've only got about five percent that are produced organically. And so you've got like a brand like Curious Croppers. So Curious Croppers produce heirloom tomatoes using more traditional farming methods, but they're a small fraction. And so if they're already and, and you normally only see them in Faro. So the other thing <laughs> yeah. is you can't get past the fact, I was talking about this to someone this morning, New Zealand is a stratified society. It's not as stratified as the UK or US, but it's still stratified. It's becoming more and more class-based, oh, it yeah. seems. Yeah. It's gone back to that. Yeah. I mean, we were class-based up until about the 70s. Then we moved away from that for about 40 years, and now we're going back as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and there's a squeeze middle class, right? So that's what we're seeing happen all the way through the West. It's happening in China now too as the economy kind of declines. So what that means is that if you can afford it and you go and shop at Faro, you're gonna, you, you can see it in the bins, right? You see really high quality fruit, veg, because they're charging you for it, but you're getting the premium grade of whatever that is. Whereas if you go to Pack and Save, Right, then you're getting what the other guys aren't buying. And so you can see that very different. You know, the apples, the bananas, the avocados, the grapes, they're just not as good. And that's why right. I find interesting the whole talk about sustainability, because mm. I think food that is grown more sustainably, whatever other stuff are grow, grown more sustainably, like biodegradable this or sustainably made that, there's often obviously an extra charge to that. And it's hard when we talk about sustainability because it feels like and it still feels like it's a middle class like problem. It's a middle class issue because it's only middle class. So it's all marketed at the middle class to actually be able to be like, oh, it, be more sustainable. It, it, it is. And if you think if you think about it again in local terms, if you live in or you got friends in Ponsonby, or Parnell or Mount Eden or Epsom, it's a big topic. But that's because again, to your point, that's there. There, it's a wealthier generally a wealthier class of people living in those neighbourhoods. They're better educated. You know what I mean? And so they're more conscious about sustainability and about where did this get produced and how safe is it? Because it's not just, actually, that's a good point too. It's not just sustainability. It's also the health and safety of the produce that you're consuming. So that's another thing. And that's become a really big deal in Europe, right? So the EU has got the world's most rigorous legislation around 
sustainability around elimination of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. So chemistry treat based treatments and production. But they've gone so far with it. So I was just talking to the global CEO of one of the major seed companies the other day. And he was saying to me that 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 between energy costs being so high in Europe, which has partly come from the Russia-Ukraine war, labor being difficult because people just don't want to work on farms anymore. And but more particularly regulatory frameworks now being so punishing of producers, it's forcing farming out of Europe, especially in the fresh produce sector. So at a time when there's an orientation towards healthier eating, fresh produce production is being forced out of Europe. So now they're having to import from Africa. So the thing that is the trend is basically is that Africa over the next 20 years is going to become like a food basket producer for export to Europe. But in order to be able to do that, it has to produce a certain quality grade of fruit. So it's not enough to produce blueberries. They've got to produce really good blueberries because someone in Germany or France or London isn't going to buy them unless it's really good. And so that's partly where we weigh in. So part of our goal is to produce better quality fruit and vegetables. And so that's kind of part of our value proposition into those producers. But that's just an interesting kind of macro that's going on in the world the, the time when people are thinking about food security, they're actually also legislating stuff that is going against that very idea. I find if, it, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, because you know? I, I find that in the current conversation, right, when we talk about sustainability and the environment, it feels like there's like two sides to this thing. It's people who are talking about, oh, the environment and we need less dairy, less cows and we should all be mm. vegetarian or whatever. And then there's people who are actually the people who are growing our food, whether it's dairy or meat or vegetables or fruit or whatever. Mm. And we're making it really difficult for people to grow this food. And so you're getting those issues where, for example, in, in South Auckland, Pukekohe, where people are making decisions about, oh, do I keep growing my cauliflower or do I just sell up and then let them develop this greenfield into homes and if we keep making it more and more difficult for farmers and not having that conversation of oh how can we help farmers be more sustainable and support them to be more sustainable from both an environmental and Mm. economic point of view then we all win but I feel like we're in the stage where we're going to all lose yeah I mean (laughs) and that's where I go back to the strategy so there's no real strategy behind what's going on and that's a big problem so to build on that point you just made, if you think about urban uh, sprawl, of, you know, so let's go back to another high level thing. So there's more and more urban concentration going on in the world. Cities are getting bigger, right? So it's one of the things that drove the innovation idea behind indoor vertical farming in cities, right? Which is very challenging. I feel like it's been a trendy thing. I've seen a lot of that on it's social been trendy, media. But like what's happened in the last sort of nine months is about 90% of these venture capital funded innovation companies in the vertical farming space have all collapsed. Yeah, I was wondering right. where they all went because I remember seeing a lot of it. Yeah, no, they've all, they've like, all folded because that. they're not economically viable. Oh. Right? So, but what, still, what gets in the way of them? It's still being a good econo- idea. Yeah, what, what gets you know, in the way? Then they're not, well, gosh. Is it like the cost it's of It's almost like materials, an entire podcast yeah. conversation by itself. <laughs> in short, it is that a lot of the people who went in to lead the innovation didn't know what they were doing. From a business point of view, like they had all all the ideas. Or even growing point of view. In fact, one of the major shortcomings they almost all had is they hired lots of technologists and lots of people with fancy titles from Cargill's and sort of food, big food companies 
but who actually had no idea about production, right? So you're trying to innovate with a new form of farming method and you don't have any farmers or growers on your staff. I mean, what are you thinking? You know what I mean? Like you're literally working in a vacuum saying you're innovating, but you're drawing on no knowledge around actually how to do it, how to produce the tomato, how to produce leafy greens. So the ones that are still going, who are still being successful is because they've got expert knowledge as part of their executive team who are producers, they know how to grow things. So that was really the dif- distinction between the ones who are still standing and the ones who are folded. Because I think right. you need that partnership with people who are, have the expertise in the technology tech side and also the people who well, have the expertise in I, the business I side, I draw right? the parallel with what we do, with what Way Beyond does to what a company innovating in health life sciences does, right? I mean, you don't invent a new medicine or a new technology for use, say, in a surgery, in a surgical theatre, without understanding how the human body works, right? That would seem crazy, right? Or how... What about that lady from Theranos? Didn't she try and do... <laughs> right, okay, well, yeah. So in, in a way she did, I mean... She got away with it for a long time, she? Didn't did, she? she did, but what a fall. I mean, <laughs> but that, that again shows you the danger of the hype cycle when she was able to secure all these high-profile investors and get people to believe. Look, I, I've watched the documentaries, I've read the court case debrief and all that stuff. I mean, I think when she started, I think she was probably genuine about what she was doing. I think she probably believed she genuinely had something and that it was possible. And that's a very entrepreneurial founder mindset, right? That you'll just keep going until the idea runs out. It's either successful or it runs out. But smart founders learn stuff, right? And they also acknowledge shortcomings in their original thesis and they adapt it, right? So the companies that you see really succeed are the ones who adapt over time as they learn things. And she wasn't doing that. It was once she was on her course of action, she just kept going. And then when things weren't working, she started hiding stuff, right? So that was that that became the ultimate driver behind her downfall. But the point, since we're without digressing further onto that one, as fascinating as it is that if you're going to work in human life sciences or in farm production, you've got to understand biology. That's basically where you've got to start. So it doesn't matter how cool your technology is. If you don't understand the biology, the physiology of what you're dealing with, what are you doing? How much did you understand before you started getting into the ag Me personally, very little, (laughs) right? But what I did is I hired people who understood it. Very good, yep. So I've got a a director of crop sciences and agronomy. He's a PhD in plant genetics. I've got a director of artificial intelligence. He's got a PhD in mathematics and other related sciences. So My brother's just got a master's in AI and I think he's looking at getting a PhD because he's like, I'm not going to be able to get a job in New Zealand unless I have a PhD. So he's in Australia at the moment looking at going to Europe and I'm like, okay, won't see you for a while. Yeah, That is a thing. So so yeah, so I went and found knowledge, what I mean. So once I identified, I mean, the first important point was I identified that if I was wanted to be successful with innovating and transforming this industry, which is my goal is to transform it into digital farming, then I needed to have people who understood growing and understood agronomy and understood plant science and understood what we were dealing with, the subject that, that we were applying the technology to. And that's really what separates way beyond globally. So the reason why in like less than three years, We've got Bayer Crop Science as a customer, HM Klaus as a customer, Syngenta as a customer, large corporatized producers in Mexico, Morocco, Spain. What are the benefits of having Way Beyond on your team? What does it do for the crops? It's it. Oh, what does it do for the crops? Mm. So basically it's about improving the management of the crops, so the optimization of the quality. 
of the crop and also optimizing inputs into the crop. So whether that's water utilization, um, herbicide, pesticides, or crop protection utilization, uh, loss, you, limiting crop loss. Do you think the protected, um, what, do you call, what do you call it, protected, protected farming? Cropping. The prote- protected cropping. Mm-hmm. Do you think protected cropping is the future for agriculture within New Zealand? Like when we talk about climate change and all these climate disasters happening and more unpredictable weather patterns, or at least not necessarily unpredictable, but more extreme think, weather patterns. I think for the horticultural sector, yes. And I mean, and interestingly, if you travel around New Zealand and you go and see cherry orchards, right? Almost every cherry orchard is under netting now, right? So you'll see them under net houses, net infrastructure. That's new, right? That's been coming out for a few years, but it's relatively new. So, and that's designed again to mitigate for things like pe- uh, sorry, frost, right? Because cherries are a bit like grapes. They need to grow in a temperate, cooler climate. So they need light, but they need Cool, the coolness to also trigger part of the growth cycle of the plant, particularly true of berries and grapes, right? So that's why choosing the right microclimate, or if you're a wine producer, the right terroir, right? So you've got the right soil, light, climate, all that stuff is really important. But to really pick the right spots, you need to understand, you need data that drives that. So we're, at our heart, we're a data company. So we take environmental data, plant data, irrigation data, pest and disease data, and that's we produce models from that. All of that sits on the back end of the platform and then we have a more user-friendly interface, which is then how they discover things about what's happening with the crop. Because I guess at the end of the day, it's about trying to maximise like, maximize yield, but also maximise quality for, I guess, the limited amount of yeah, land. and optimise resources, right? Yeah. So that's where the sustainable part comes in. So, And I guess this is part of it is that sustainability and climate is such a broad subject area that we're impacting certain pieces. We're not claiming to be the panacea of all things, right? Which some people do, which is a big mistake. So it is, we're looking at, can we optimize water usage? Can we optimize the the use of less pesticides, herbicide, fungicides, so chemistry, and that they use more biologics or natural defenses for the plants? And that's agronomy. Agronomy is the practice of plant, producing plants and crops. So what else we got? Managing light levels. Mm. So there are things that we can labor optimization. There are things that we can influence, some more directly, some more indirectly. And we're still learning as we go. I mean, the thing is, everything we do is new in the and world. From right. like the ag tech as a whole sector in mm. New Zealand strategy point of view, if you were given the job to make that strategy, what do you think that strategy would look like? That's a good question. I think that the first thing is I would make sure that the consultant, that the people that you consult with weren't just the big players, right? Which has been my guidance to government already. Who's well, you the need big to players? get people like me and, and Matty who founded Hectare and like some of the startup people. And you need to draw on them from technology and biology and, and food science. So you need a more kind of like holistic collaboration between people who understand different parts of the food system. And so you get all those guys together and that's where you get to brainstorm out what does New Zealand's future look like. But the high level of it would be that New Zealand should be a centre of excellence for advanced genetics, biology and technology. That's what it would look like in the broad brushstrokes. I guess I think that's how I picture New Zealand is that we have, like at the moment, I think a lot of our exports is just the 
primary industries, like mm. exporting the dairy and the meat, which is relatively low value items, right? Whereas yeah. I feel like we're such an agri- agricultural heavy economy that we should have this expertise. We should be able to be sort of like a think tank almost mm-hmm. of agricultural practices that we could export to the rest of the world. And yet I feel like, are, are we doing that? Are we achieving that? We're, I mean, the, the challenge with the bulk production of wool, fiber, meat is that it's a commodity play. So it's very influenced, pricing is just influenced by the way the wind blows on the global procurement markets, really. So doing value added work, which is what you see with a lot of the Northern European countries that many of us for decades have repeatedly said we should be basing ourselves on what Norway does or Sweden does or the Netherlands does, or, you know what I mean, like thinking about the places that are of similar size and scale to us where we could be more in line with the way they innovate. And that also feeds into the social program side. It's an unrelated topic, but the strength of those economies, the reason why they have such good health and education systems is they do have a high tax regime, but those tax dollars are used very efficiently. The problem here is every time we run up taxes, and we say we're investing money into health, into education. The bureaucracy is so inefficient that that money just fritters away on consultants and very little of it actually lands in any advancement in, in those sectors that we're targeting. I think people in New Zealand would be happier to pay higher taxes if they thought the government was any good at actually driving innovation and, and efficiency in the way that was going to be utilised. Yeah, I don't really understand where it's all come from. The whole, I guess, almost like infantilising of a government to sort of outsource governance to <laughs> the, the contractors of the consulting companies. Consultants, you know? yeah, I know. It's just crazy. I don't know how it's happened. <laughs> because they don't know much about much, right? They're just very good at PowerPoint and yeah. spinning it. I mean, from story. a healthcare point of view, it's interesting when we see all these, all, all this money spent on consultants. And I'm like, but... Are any of them healthcare workers or doctors or nurses Again, or anything? that's what I'm talking and, about. If you're going yeah. to innovate for an industry, you've got to bring together people who understand it. Yeah. But you've also got to bring in the people who are already presenting themselves as being the thought leaders and the innovators and the futurists because that's who you've got to have in the conversation. The thing with ag and bio generally, and I include food science in that, is that you've got to think in terms of decades, right? Governments come in three come and go in three three year cycles or six years if we're more typically. But you've got to think in decades when you're thinking about food and ag. And we've got to get back to that. If we really want to shift the dial for New Zealand in those spaces, we've got to have people and governments that are prepared to think beyond themselves for the good of the people, the good of the country. So that's one of the things I would do. Coming back to your question about what would I do? Well, I'd be thinking in terms of decades and generations and saying that the government's got to make strategic investments in certain sectors because private investment sector won't do that. A private venture capital financial VC is looking at a sort of five to seven year return typically, sometimes a little bit longer. But in ag, you could be on the journey for 15 years before you can have an exit from a financial point of view on the business. It's a long time. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you.
So I just want to come back to this one thing we didn't cover. So the whole thing around food production too is like you touched on the veganism, vegetarian kind of anti-meat kind of thing that's been around. I mean, the thing is that we're eating more proteins, right? So we're eating more fruit proteins, we're eating more fruits and vegetables, which we should be. We've got major problems with diabetes, with obesity, and there's we've got to shift the diet. Absolutely. To address that for the long term, right? There are limitations on what plant-based and cellular-based protein development can do, right? And a lot of those companies that were really hugely successful, like Impossible Foods, and although they're all falling over now too. I was gonna. That, that's the other thing. I was like, oh, I've been thinking about it, but when was the last time I saw a Beyond Burger or an Impossible Burger? You just don't really see them yeah. as much. They were very nice patties, though. I have to say. Right, and and they are. They're not bad, but it's like part of the problem was actually in trying to be a meat substitute by actually looking like and tasting like meat. Is, is that, that vegetarians yeah. didn't buy them? Is vegetarians didn't want to eat them? Right, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and also, I thought and, the only way that they would be able to successfully, I think, beat meat, I think. <laughs> I don't know what should I be said. careful with that phrase, but yes. <laughs> the only way that they can be better than meat is if they were cheaper than meat as well. And I yeah. think that was one of the barriers is that, oh, I'm like, well, I could spend a bit. I, to me, I thought they tasted almost exactly the same. Like, yeah. and similar it's enough. It's very impressive what they've done with the technology. If it's going right. to be more expensive, then wh- why would I? Plenty. Why would I buy meat that's been made in some lab in the US when I could be buying meat that was actually grown and farmed in New Zealand? Look, there's been a few people in, who've spoken in defence of the meat industry, quite rightly so, in my opinion, where, look, if the issue is about runoff, then let's solve the runoff problem. If the issue is about waste from cows going into the soil and then running into the waterways, let's just solve that problem. Yeah. We should, the that, repairing areas. Yeah, 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 that's how we should be innovating. Yeah. We should be innovating around those problems so that meat production, dairy production, just become more sustainable production. It doesn't mean that it has to go away. And the truth is, there's been a lot of research done on this, is that if you tried to flip the switch on moving everybody onto a non-meat diet, I mean, you can't do it. There's not, you cannot, literally, the world cannot produce enough using those methods to feed everybody. So it's really more about striking the balance between achieving a healthy diet for everybody that's nutritious and has the right calories, but is produced in a way that's less harmful for the planet. And that's my view on sustainable production is that. It's about what can we do that will optimize the care of the planet while still providing enough nutritious food product for, for us. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. I think that's a great mission and I wish you very well. Thanks. <laughs> so um, hey, one, one very last question. If you could sit down and have dinner with anybody, past or present, alive or dead, who would you have dinner with? Elon Musk. <laughs> Why is that? I love Elon. Yeah. He's great. <laughs> he loves to speak his mind, I'll say that. He does, but look, I think I speak in defense of Elon quite often. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, of course, I'm very, I mean, none of us are Do you perfect. drive a Tesla? None of us are perfect people. No, I don't. <laughs> none of us are perfect people. So and he certainly has areas that he could do much better on in terms of public communication. Communications, <laughs> But I think what people overlook is that this is a guy, I mean, if you think about Steve Jobs was like that transformative figure and for in, in the world for a long time because of what he innovated with Apple, right? Because of the way that changed the way we use technology. And Elon is just a whole other order of magnitude above that. I mean, I mean, he's, I mean, through Tesla, I guess they've really changed the electric vehicle industry as well. 
Totally. And the fact that he published all the patents, right, and basically said, I'm open sourcing everything because I want you all to go electric. So Toyota and all these people that are now effectively competing against him have leveraged the technology that he put out there to some extent. I mean, that shows a genuine intention around the betterment of the planet, right? And then with SpaceX, he's pushing the boundary of innovation to push us to other planets. I mean, that's a really so big, given up super on this big one, idea. Though, no, no, no. I, that's an interesting <laughs> question, though. I don't think it's that. And he, and then he's got the Starlink network, right, which he's allowed the Ukraine military to use in defence against Russia. And he's often pushed it into service for humanitarian reasons. But the media, mainstream media, and, and some members of the public overlook all that because all they want to do is focus on some of the more contra- takes. controversial yeah, yeah, right. Back to that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the short soundbitey stuff that's very controversial. I mean, of course, he dropped the f bomb yesterday and basically told oh, that's right, Bob Iger yeah. of Disney to go take a hike, which was hilarious. I thought, but he was calling it out, and he's in a very unique position to be able to do that. I mean, this is a guy who's now at the point where literally governments and world leaders come to talk to him and entreaty his. They want to be on his good side. I mean, it's very few individuals in history who get to that position of power and influence, but that's where he is. I'm glad that he's, despite his, you know, kind of he's clearly on the spectrum, is that, is that, that, he's, that he's still, well, yeah, <laughs> that he's still, I don't think I'm quite that far, but that he's still pretty grounded, you know what I mean? Because he's got some good core values around family, around, around his, that come from his upbringing, being very difficult. Those things, I think, keep him grounded to some extent. But the thing is that innovation and change does not come from the mainstream. It comes from outliers. And so you're an outlier in the way that you project your position around the way you think and the way you think the country needs to move and the way that politics should operate in the community. I mean, I'm innovating on the edge in my space. I have plenty of people who think I'm as mad as a cut snake, right? And don't. I feel like the most exciting people are always a bit mad, aren't they? You have to <laughs> you have to be free to think and imagine outside of what is normal. So there's part of you that has to operate outside the mainstream in order to move forward. Otherwise nothing would change. So you've got to got to get comfortable <clears throat> with that, that that's where you are. That's how evolution happens. It happens at the fringes, not in the middle. It does, exactly. Mm. Right. <laughs> so and that's why I think founders have got to be nurtured. I mean, one of the things that I have been talking about more recently and want to do something about in a more formal sense, hopefully not too late from now, is provide more support for founders. There's a lot of, New Zealand's ecosystem is not pro-founder, it's pro-investor, and that brings a lot of problems with it. And also there's a lot of research that's been done internationally now on mental health issues for founders. So you know, a whole nother podcast, we could do a whole nother you know. podcast episode about this because I was deeply saddened by the crumbling of Soupy, deeply saddened. Right. I mean, and that's a super interesting story. So, I mean, when I don't know her and I wasn't particularly au fait with Soupy until it, all the news broke and, and all that negative media coverage came out. But there were some really standout things for me. One of them was I couldn't understand how as the founder, she had already diluted to 17% ownership within less than three years. I mean, that's just super weird, right? So there was clearly some stuff in the backstory about how the investors had, the terms on which the investors had invested, the valuation of the business, the way they'd structured it all was clearly designed to advantage the investors, not advantage her as the founder. So that's what I'm talking about. 
because there's no way, regardless of all the other potential shortfalls that happened in that whole journey, there's no way she should have already been diminished to that level. So that, to me, was a red flag right away. And then I think, it's who again, it's that subject of who you bring around you. And I think, unfortunately, she didn't necessarily know um, because of not having the experience and not having the right advisory people around her, who to bring around her. So I think when you dig into that, it would make a fascinating ca- case study for what not to do. Do you know what I'm I mean? like, oh, man, I really um, liked having orders through Sufi. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people did, right? And, I mean, she was just really warming up. I have to go up. back to back and say. just warming up. Well, yeah. So I want to spend a lot more time around founders and helping founders set themselves up in the right way and take what have been my learnings, which have been learnt very hard lessons, quite honestly, about that whole side of it and give them the advantage so that when they're in the conversation with investors, they're in a stronger position to negotiate their terms. So, and also get support for the stress because being a founder is a very stressful thing. So you're on the edge with everything. Mm. You're on the edge with your idea. You're on the edge with the technology. You're on the edge with trying to get customers, generate revenues. Everything's pretty stressful. Things are always harder than you ever thought they were going to be. There was a great, I'll finish on this. There was a great interview with the founder of NVIDIA who does the, you know, gaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, uh, oh, they must be very wealthy now. Oh, yeah, he is. So there was an interview being done by, I think, a podcaster, and he was pretty recently on social media. And he's, I don't know, he's in his 40s. He's got shock grey hair, which I thought was, I thought, yeah, he's a founder. Um, And they asked him, there were two interviewers, and they were asking him, they were younger guys, probably your age, 30 or something, and they were saying to him, wow, it's amazing, look how successful you've been. What would you do differently if you could do this all over again? And he went, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> no, <we're laughs> that. And they were like, what, really? I said, yeah. He said, because, man, it is so stressful and it takes so much out of you and it's so much harder and so much longer than you ever imagined it's going to be. And he said, honestly, if I could go back in a time machine, I wouldn't do it. And they were just like, wow. And they said, so why do you, so hang on. And then they went, hang on, but you're still here and you're still doing it. So why is that? He said, ah, good question. Good follow-up question. So he said, basically, he said, it's, it is a, a mental trick that founders play on themselves to keep going. And he said, fundamentally, it is asking yourself the question every morning of how hard could it be, right? So he said, that is the thing that you've got to do is every day you've got to go, oh, but how hard could it be? Right, you know what I mean, and you just got to get yourself psychologically over over what's going on around you, and just push through that to the next step. And that's totally what you do when you're in that position. So that his little kind of story there really resonated with me as a founder. But I believe that there can be more support for founders. There can be ways of helping them on the journey. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Right, thank you again. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap.